BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Today on the California Report magazine, we are more than one year into the pandemic. I'm Dr. Braxley. I'm one of the emergency room doctors, and I get to take care of you today. The hallway of the ER is lined with patients in gurneys. Dr. Nicole Braxley ping-pongs from one to another. She handles the stroke patient first, then the woman with chest pain, then a paramedic briefs her about a third patient who is struggling to breathe. Over the last four days, she's been having an increase in shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we got there, she's sitting on the edge of her bed, breathing about three times a minute. Mm-hmm. This could be COVID or not COVID. Dr. Braxley basically has two minutes to narrow down what's wrong and decide what to do next. Do you have a history of um, emphysema from smoking? or I've is never it just smoked. Okay, so asthma? Yes. Asthma, okay. Have you ever needed to go to the intensive care unit? or yes, had I have. You have. Because she has asthma and diabetes, this patient is at higher risk of serious complications from COVID. If that turns out to be what this is. <coughs> By now, the patient can barely answer questions anymore. She's wheezing hard. All right, love. And I heard the albuterol helped a little bit. Not too much. Just want to breathe. All year, I've been writing the phrase shortness of breath in my stories, over and over in a list of common COVID symptoms. It was such a different thing to see it, to hear it. I'm April Domboski. And I'm Leslie McClurg. We're in for Sasha Coca. It's one thing to write about the pandemic from home. It's a totally different thing to be in a hospital seeing a doctor yelling at a patient through layers of protective plastic. You are in the ICU. The room is loud. Everyone is screaming. I've talked to lots of doctors about how difficult it is to connect emotionally with all these new protocols, but to see the lack of intimacy, it was gut-wrenching. You are very sick right now. Today, we're going to go inside two hospitals near Sacramento. I was in the intensive care unit. And I was in the emergency room. One year into the pandemic, it was clear these clinicians are not celebrating any anniversaries. They've seen too much. Way too much has changed. And there's talk of a fourth surge. For them, there is no post-COVID world. This is going to be the steady state. And there's going to be variations constantly happening. And we're going to have, like, good COVID years and bad COVID years. We're going to explore the little ways, the big ways, and the surprising ways that COVID has changed the way doctors do their jobs. Okay. Okay. Department, female, seven minutes. 
That's us. When Dr. Braxley puts on her surgical mask and plastic face shield, she also straps on a fanny pack. The green and pink sequins flash in the fluorescent light. Yeah, a little bit of bling, you know. What do you keep in there? Um, trauma shears, my business card. Stuff she used to keep in the pockets of her white coat. But she's not supposed to wear her white coat anymore. No one is. White coats dangle over the bedside, brush a patient's arm or face. It's a potential source of infection. But the white coat, I didn't, I'm afraid to say this, but I didn't wash it after every single shift. You know, I'd wash it maybe like once a week. So now it's the fanny pack. It's with her always as she greets patients rolling off the ambulances. Hi, I'm Dr. Braxley. Can you say your name? They also learned early on people coming in for a stroke or a heart attack can also have COVID. So Dr. Braxley is always careful, always checking. I'm going to take a listen to your heart and lungs. Do you have any chest pain or shortness of breath? My head hurts. Your head hurts. Okay, love. Dr. Braxley calls all her patients love or darling. It's one way of bringing humanity to the chaos. Braxley has to keep track of about 18 patients during her shift. She is triple tasking every moment of her day. Patient presents from home via EMS. Writing a note for one patient. Abdominal pain period. Consulting with the neurologist about another. And she just keeps repeating my head, my head. Then she's running off to check on a third. My darling, did you get your vaccine for COVID? Keeping track of all these details, she says her brain is just naturally wired for this. I see people in the grocery store, and I'm like, I don't know your name, but you had chest pain, and your right leg hurt, and you were in room three. How are you? ER docs are also wired for action. When Braxley came to work here at Mercy San Juan Medical Center five years ago, she was excited. The hospital serves a diverse, low-income population, and it's busy. It's a little bit perverse, but when you go to medical school and residency and you want to be an ER doctor, like you want to see stuff. And in order to see stuff, you got to go where the patients are sick. So I don't want anyone to get sick and have to go to the ER. But if they do, we want to take care of them because like that's fun for us to help people feel better. Braxley thrives on the speed. But this is another way COVID has changed her work. All those safety protocols, they slowed things down. Nothing was quick anymore. Doctors have to pile on layers of protective equipment before seeing a possible COVID patient, then take it all off after. They have to keep them isolated too, which means constantly running from one end of the ER to the other. The thing that was the most difficult is when patients were unhappy or unsatisfied with the care that they received because of the weight. They would complain and I would just be so sad and just say, I am so sorry we couldn't meet your expectations, but do you have any idea what we're going through on the inside? There's no sign of when or even if these changes will be reversed. For now, Braxley says this is the order of business. There have been times in the pandemic earlier on when COVID was scary and kind of exhilarating. Maybe maybe we were like yelling, not yelling at each other, but like, I need something this, I need that, new patient in 10. But now? But now we feel like, I think we feel like pros. We're like, oh, another respiratory distress. They've seen it all. You know, we're just like, whatever, we're kind of over it.
Braxley turns back to her computer for some more triple tasking. All right, I appreciate it. Thanks, bye. She starts dictating her notes. So the chief complaint of shortness of breath, period. The chief complaint of possible stroke, period. Chief complaint of ground level fall and right hip pain, period. Whatever the primary problem is, the threat of COVID is always lingering between those periods and commas. For about four days, come up Like the patient Dr. Braxley saw earlier in her shift, who couldn't breathe. So she would be, she would go in one of our suspected COVID rooms. Um, because of the... Because of the shortness of breath, yeah. It's so intense to see people not able to breathe. Uh, not being able to breathe must be one of the single worst feelings in the world. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. I imagine that you just literally feel like you're drowning. Dr. Braxley puts the patient on a BiPAP oxygen machine, which helps open her lungs. About 20 minutes later, she stops by the isolation room. Hey, my darling. How are we doing with the BiPAP? You want to give me a thumbs up, thumbs down? Better? She gives a Good. thumbs up. What happens next depends in part on the results of her COVID test. If she's negative, she could go home tonight. If she's positive, she could be admitted to the hospital or even the ICU. You do not want to end up in the ICU with COVID because your odds of getting out are not great. Only about half of the patients who arrive ever leave. And that's if you're not on a ventilator. If you get put on a vent, your chances of going home are minimal, which is why Dr. Paramel Barucha doesn't like to do it. He's an ICU doctor at Mercy Hospital of Folsom near Sacramento. Connecting a patient to a ventilator is a last resort. The disease is so extensive that we have to sedate them, i.e. give them medicines to put them to sleep and paralyze them because we do not want them to breathe on their own. There's nothing really human about it. The body is super still. It's somewhat covered by a hospital gown. The patient is wrapped in this dizzying maze of circuitry. At least two tubes through the mouth. One goes in the stomach, one goes in the lungs. There will be what we call as a central line, which is a big IV line that goes in the neck or in the groin. Another IV in your hand or in the groin that measures your blood pressure continuously. A catheter so that we can drain the urine. Two tubes, IV line, hand, neck, mouth. There will be a tube that goes in the rectum. It's worse than I imagined. No matter how much we try to preserve the dignity, it is not always possible. So you have your rares hanging out, private parts that are nobody else's business to look at. But as I said, you, you, what can you do? You are technically a lifeless body. The few who survive leave the ICU on a gurney where they're transferred to a rehab facility and then dependent on a breathing machine and a feeding tube. During the pandemic, this is a big change because usually doctors have various treatments they can try. It's devastating for Barucha that his primary option, the ventilator, is a terrible option. When I met up with Dr. Barucha, the first thing I notice are his hands because the skin around his fingernails is red and peeling away, kind of swollen. And my hands are all charred off. Yep, that is all gone from constant cleaning. Earlier this year, he developed cystic acne from wearing a mask hour after hour. And that was not very good. I was on antibiotics for like two months. He says he's basically lived inside the COVID ICU. Come on in. Makeshift white plastic walls contain the area. This is all cordoned off. This was all open. Blue and red tape stitches the enclosure together. 
The space in the past actually used to be a labor and delivery unit, shepherding in the beginning of life. And now all the patients are at the other end. Nurses actually use baby monitors to communicate with very sick and dying COVID patients. And the last glove. When Barucha has to visit a sick patient, he layers on a lot of protective plastic. And we have gotten very good at this now, after a year of using it like multiple times a day. He used to come to work wearing a shirt and tie underneath his white coat. And now Barucha spends most of his day dressed kind of like a Martian. He pulls on this blue plastic gown over his scrubs and then a white hooded contraption, a large thing called a papper. Another gown, two pairs of gloves. Wow. Exactly. He plugs the spacesuit into a battery pack. Wait till it starts. And then this loud machine begins sucking air out of the suit. And it's so loud you have to shout at each other. We used to screaming in that room. Yeah, I know. That's what I, I can't hear. Dr. Barucha and a Russian interpreter, they kind of adjust their gear and then they unzip the plastic walls, enclosing the COVID-19 area. So that is one wing of COVID. This is the second wing of COVID. They point uh, to a patient room through a glass window. He is not doing very well. Therefore, he is on BiPAP and a lot of oxygen. Barucha pulls back a heavy door and the duo task. enters the patient's room. How are you feeling today? I was struck by the noise. This giant negative pressure fan is sucking air out of the room. And even though Dr. Barucha has to lean his body way over a patient to be heard, he's super careful not to touch the patient. There was no warmth in the bedside care. And this person is alone without any family, and he can hardly understand what's going on. You have to come to the ICU because you got COVID infection, causing bad pneumonia. You are requiring a lot of oxygen. He's asking how long he has to stay here. How long do you have to stay here? At least a few days till you can get better. You are very sick right now. The patient looks a little lost. Patients are always asking Barucha, when can I get out of here? The problem is that that is very, very, very isolated. And there's nothing you can do about it, unfortunately. He says a patient's mind takes a beating in a COVID ICU. Sitting all by themselves 24 hours a day in and day out, sometimes for five days, six days, seven days, you are locked in a cell in a prison, you know? Barucha points down another hallway. All the wood doors are closed except one. This is the room where we had the cardiac arrest before you just walked in. Uh, the patient has passed away, so now they will sterilize the room, clean the room completely before it can be reused. So it will be out of use for a few hours. His tone strikes me as a touch casual, as if they're turning over a hotel room. But someone just died. And yet Barucha, I mean, he has seen so much death over this past year. It was like a war zone. So doing it day in, day out, seeing so many patients not do well or crashing in front of your eyes, you become fatigued emotionally, mentally. You are a patient advocate. You are their family, which is a lot of burden. 
to be somebody's family, to hold their hands when they are dying. It's very hard. There's often not time to honor dying requests. Barucha remembers an older woman who hadn't seen her son in decades. She finally called him, but the son couldn't visit his mother because of pandemic protocols. This lady could not have the son at the bedside, and she treated me as a son or saw me as her son and wanted me to hold her hands when she dies, and I could not live up to that. Right at the end, Barucha was called away to treat someone else. Somewhere in the back of my mind, it is haunting me, and I do not know how long it will haunt me. Yeah. He says he's haunted by more stories than he can count. The patient that passed this morning was the second this week. It's only Wednesday. Barucha suggested I talk to one of his patients who did make it out of the ICU. She's a 73-year-old woman who spent 88 days in the hospital fighting COVID. She was taken on and off a vent three times. A few weeks ago, she was finally released. I was supposed to talk to the patient's daughter to hear their story, but on the morning of our interview, she called me in tears. They were heading back to the emergency room. ER doctors see every kind of illness, from the most serious to the most mundane. But in a strange way, the rise of COVID has led to changes in who's coming in for everything else. And that has led to one of the cruel side effects of the pandemic, how the ER doctors get paid. The Mercy San Juan ER is divided into two sections, one side where the ambulances go, the other side is for walk-ins. This, the room right in front of you is our, is our primary triage room. Dr. Nate Beckerman is in charge today. Okay. Triage duty is like speed dating. Hi, I'm Dr. Beckerman. How can we help you? In 15 minutes, he sees a young black man with a torn calf muscle. Pain back there? Right there. Right there. A woman with bright pink hair with an infected spider bite. Looks pretty uncomfortable. It is excruciatingly uncomfortable. Yeah. And an older Any woman sitting in a wheelchair, yeah. a possible COVID case. Any fevers at all? No. Pain in your chest? No. No? Okay. You can't breathe. Yeah. All kinds of people, all kinds of problems. Dr. Beckerman says the majority of their patients are from low-income areas of Sacramento. A lot are also immigrants or refugees. We see a lot of languages here. Russian, Ukrainian, Dari, Farsi, Arabic, some Hmong and Mien. But when the pandemic first hit, all these voices dried up. The ER emptied out. Doctors say it was like a ghost town. All those people with torn muscles and spider bites were staying home for fear of catching something worse in the hospital. This place was very, very not busy. You know, COVID came, the whole world shut down. All of the volumes in the emergency departments all across the country dropped 40 to 50%. We were the same way. Dr. Nicole Braxley says even those who thought they were having heart attacks or strokes were also avoiding the ER because of COVID. So part of it was that people weren't calling and they weren't coming in. And part of it was just that they weren't doing anything to get hurt or to, you know, feel bad. No car crashes, no football injuries, no playground accidents. And without those patients in the ER, the hospital couldn't send them any bills. 
we continued to show up to work every day despite any risk to ourselves and our family but the volumes dropped and the business dropped so we actually all took pay cuts this was true across the country 83% of ERs cut doctor's hours during the pandemic. Some months were like, how am I gonna pay my mortgage? I actually don't have enough money to pay my mortgage. Normally during a pandemic, ER clinicians would get hazard pay. They'd get a raise. And instead we all saw the opposite. Even now, ER visits are still down 25%. And it's not clear if those patients are ever coming back. ER doctors are worried that their sickest patients didn't survive the pandemic. And that would mean there's less work for them to do. We have a wait list to be a doctor here. Like, it's hard to get a job. It's also COVID, so it's hard to get a job anywhere. But, um, yeah. That's so counterintuitive that it's hard to get a job when all we're hearing about is there's not enough staff. Mm -hmm. You ask the residents that are finishing emergency medicine this year how the job search is going. It's terrible. Terrible. And it wasn't just in moments of crisis that people skipped medical care. Throughout the year, people skipped all kinds of routine care to avoid going to the hospital. I know I didn't get my daughter vaccinated for months in the early part of the pandemic, which is obviously not good. But skipping things like cancer screenings, that can be deadly. In fact, doctors are bracing for another death wave. All those people who are dying from non-COVID things, things that could have been prevented. The providers who are grappling with this are palliative care coordinators in the ICU. My name is Erin Wemmer. Her job is to help families make those really hard decisions in the final days with their loved ones. She says her caseload has exponentially increased recently. I'm starting to see a lot of late-stage cancer diagnoses um, that I think is a result of, of delayed exams that are routine that just were not getting done. Her days look a lot different now because her patients are so much closer to the end. Before the pandemic, Wemmer focused on helping her chronically ill patients with things like managing pain because most of her people were doing okay. A lot of them lived in facilities where they could share meals with friends, family members could visit, but the pandemic has changed all that. They're not interacting and that it leads to huge, huge physical decline. Now, instead of pain management, most of Wemmer's day is spent transitioning people to hospice. It's been a huge shift. Almost all of the patients I'm seeing are now end of life. I follow Wemmer into a room to check on a patient who she's actually not sure will make it through the day. He's not in here for COVID. He has a lot of other chronic conditions, not least of which is pneumonia. And in the background, there's a stereo that's playing some ambient nature sounds. Hey, Bill. You gave us a little scare this morning. Your heart rate kept dropping. I'm sorry, Bill. I'm having trouble understanding you. What does he say? Mother. Oh, wow. Your mother? Are you seeing her? The patient gently nods, and he closes his eyes. Wemmer leaves the room to call his wife. She hopes she can arrange a short visit for the couple to say goodbye. Until recently, the hospital hasn't let anyone visit anyone. 
Patients died alone, even if they didn't have COVID. And this really bothers Wemmer. Thank God it's not what it was, but it's still horrible. Now she can usually arrange a single in-person visit. (laughs) That's not a come in and spend the final days in and out with them. It is like keep it under an hour. For six six to eight months, it was a hard no. (laughs) She's really starting to question these severe restrictions. I mean, was it right to prioritize survival over everything else? Her job is to help families let go when the time comes. And that is so much harder to do virtually. I had one woman who, she had no idea where she was. She had no idea what was happening. And as soon as her family came on the screen, she immediately started making the sign of the cross and pointing up. And so in their eyes, that was her way of saying, like, I'm ready. And she died very peacefully that same day. But most families are too desperate to let go of their loved ones peacefully over a screen. Wemmer says the most common request from relatives is just save them. Just save them. Just do whatever you have to do. Patients may make it out of the hospital alive, but whether you had COVID or not, life after the ICU can be terrible. Some people never walk again or eat on their own, and some may never heal from the emotional trauma of living 88 days in what's essentially solitary confinement. I am sure we are going to be dealing with a lot of PTSD. It's a rude awakening to lose so many days of your life in a medical coma hooked up to a ventilator. And then the families, how traumatic it can be for them to have that loved one in the hospital and the ups and downs of that, whether they survive or they don't survive. It's hitting healthcare workers too. A recent study found that 75% of doctors and nurses said they're suffering from PTSD, depression, anxiety, or insomnia. It's very heavy. I tell my husband I have nothing left. Throughout the pandemic, doctors and nurses have panicked, felt frustrated, angry, strung out, and burned out. After a full year of this, they're just empty. And yet, the war is not over. Nurse Wemmer, Dr. Barucha, Dr. Braxley, and Dr. Beckerman, they're soldiers, and they have to soldier on, even in the face of variants and people who still refuse to wear masks. As a society, we have a ways to go with everybody being on board with combating this disease. Where does that leave you? as the one who's, you know, the doctor who's left to essentially pick up the pieces. That leaves me where I've always been, right here, right here in the emergency room waiting for, you know, waiting for what's next. And, you know, we take care of everybody. Anytime, any problem, we're here. You've been listening to the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. We've been reporting from inside two hospitals, following doctors on the front lines a year into the pandemic. Their final plea to all of us, get vaccinated. I'm not going away my shot. I'm not going away my 
Special thanks to Dignity Health and to the doctors from Vaccinate for letting us use this remake of the Broadway song, My Shot. A dream of life without a fully deed. Every patient will be cared for in their time of need. Waiting rooms, hallways are no place to be comfortable. Got a triage while protecting the vulnerable with my shot. Today's show was reported and produced by April Domboski and me, Leslie McClurg. It was edited by Victoria Malione and Julia McAvoy. Our engineer is Brendan Willard. Our director is Amanda Font. Our intern is Hector Arsate. Sasha Coca will be back with us next week. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.